bread soup from Tuscany, the French influence on a Far East staple, and a hangover cure. This week, it's all about soup. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson. Welcome to Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. This is the place where we try food from around the world, and this week's show is served in a bowl, in a cup, and sometimes in a mug. This week, it's soup. But before we do that, please rate and review the podcast and give us five stars on your podcast app. It helps to boost our profile and lets other people know about the show. And thank you very, very much. Since the weather's starting to cool down, I thought now would be a good time to revisit some of my favorite conversations about soup. I've learned about lots of great soups from around the world on the podcast over the last five years. And on this episode, we'll try some soup from Tuscany, England, Vietnam, and Colombia. A diverse set of places for sure, but all have their own tasty, rich broth and soups and I'm starving, so let's eat. Destination, eat, drink. Tony Mazzaglia is an American who's lived in Florence for many years. She talks about the famous soup from Tuscany that served instead of pasta. So ribolita literally translates to reboiled. And okay. um, because you're reboiling and it ends with an egg, a soup is is feminine. So um, it's a reboiled soup. And, um, and why are we making soup with bread? Because the bread of most of Tuscany, especially Florence, um, does not have salt in it. Um, and it just goes back to there's historic reasons and taxation and things like that. But um, now they can afford the salt, but they don't want it in their bread. They think that the unsalted bread is fantastic. Um, <laughs> and, and then it goes stale after about five minutes. <laughs> so you end up with a lot of bread and hence all these recipes we have with oh, leftover okay. bread, panzanella, ribolita, yeah. papal pomodoro, all these different bread recipes, right? And the, the biggie though is the ribolita because you have, um, usually the general ingredients are going to be your base of carrot, celery, onion, and then cannellini beans. And of course, uh, the kale I mentioned earlier. Mm. Um, some people will use other greens like chicory or um, things with like a thicker stock. It depends because you find it all over Tuscany. But in Florence, I find it to be made with kale, the beans. It's not too solid. It's not too liquidy. But what's happening is, is you're, you're making a broth. You're adding it and you've got the beans and the kale. And then what gives it all the body, though, is you're putting your leftover bread in there. And it soaks up all the liquid. So... When you first make it, you've just kind of got this kind of stalish bread and all this other stuff. It hasn't really come together yet. But then when you reboil it, so generally speaking, the next day it's better because uh, you reboil it. Yeah. Hence why you call it ribolita. And it's really good with some, you know, high quality Tuscan. I mean, it could be from other places, but since we're in Tuscany, high quality Tuscan oil, a little dash of pepper. And, um, and if you want to put cheese on it, you can, but we tend to put oil on our soup here when we have good oil. Is ribolita the kind of dish that would just be served in people's homes because you're using leftover bread? Or would I find it on a menu in a restaurant? Good question. Um, it's You'll find it in a lot of uh, restaurants. Um, you know, it's going to be served in lieu of pasta. So, you know, we have our... Oh, good. Uh, I, I love my stuff on separate plates and everything's <laughs> separate here. So, <laughs> and not just on separate plates, but they don't bring it all out at the same time. So... 
you get, you know, you sit down, you have your antipasti, then you have soup or pasta, then you have your meat and your vegetables, then you have your dessert, and then you have your coffee and all that other stuff. But um, the, the ribolita, you would generally have that instead of having a pasta, or sometimes they'll serve like a little tiny amuse-bouche of ribolita. <laughs> it's like more uh, fancy, fancy and um, modern Tuscan restaurants would do that. But Sometimes they'll have it as an uh, antipasto, like a little tiny mini bowl of it in a mixed antipasto. But it's something you you definitely want to try, and you can easily try as long as it's cold out. You're not going to easily find it in the summer because, you know, Italians eat seasonally, and the right. vegetables, but also the temperature of what they're eating. They're not going to eat a lot of soup in the summer because we don't have very good air conditioning. Alice Beaver splits her time between Italy and England. She tells me about the unfortunately named brown soup. Um, one of the recipes uh, that that came out was um, brown soup, <laughs> and now the name the now the name is brown soup, but it's had other doesn't sound appetizing. <laughs> it doesn't, does it? It doesn't sound good. And I, they're, they're, the name, which has become brown soup, it had a royal entry into the world, and then it fell to. Um, <laughs> A, a name which became the brown soup of Windsor, a <laughs> Windsor brown soup. But um, so it, it, they believe it was created by the same person who started A1 steak sauce. Steak sauce. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> yes. Um, and then the, um, the queen liked the soup, which is basically, it started out as a kind of like um, a broth, beef broth and some vegetables with um, noodles. Um, and then a, her chef, who was also, uh, he was French Italian, um, he kind of fancied it up and, and um, with some vermouth uh, and like made it quite even, even nicer than its original recipe. And he obviously, every, that in, during the Victorian age, a lot of people really wanted to um, be royal, you know, and he printed a, uh, a cookbook, The Modern Cook. And it had that recipe in there, the Windsor soup. And so all the cooks at that time, all the women wanted to make this soup. So the soup became very popular, you know, a representation of royalty. But it was easy, you know, it's easy to make because basically it's um, it's a beef stew that's cooked very long. And I mean, you can make it with different meats or whatever, but ox, oxtail was one of the original ones. But and some finished with a little bit of um, vermouth or some kind of um, alcohol, if you want. Vermouth, another Italian connection. Exactly. Um, but then as as things kind of progressed, it lost its luster starting at the you know industrialization of food and mass production. And because it was easy to and pretty cheap to make. It became kind of like a staple in like military and staple oh. in um, like 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 um, railroad cars or whatever. And it got very it got de 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 luxuryified <laughs> and became like synonymous with the worst kind of British food. So that's why for some reason, the you know, this soup is not talked about that very, very much in Windsor. But I thought it was really funny that it kind of has this history of that starts with the royal, you know, the, the royalty and ends up with, you know, being a butt of many jokes. Tracy Nguyen is a foodie travel guide from Hanoi Street Food Tours. She tells me about the different kinds of pho you can get when you visit Vietnam. 
I wanted to talk to you. You mentioned this briefly earlier, Tracy, the FA, which is a P-H-O. A lot of Americans, they pronounce it pho, but that's not the correct pronunciation. But this is yeah. a dish. Uh, I, was, I was reading a little bit before I was going to talk to you, and I didn't realize a lot of people credit um, the, uh, Hanoi as being the birthplace of pho. This is where it originally came from. And you said that the, uh, the base... The broth is based on a French consommé, which is a fascinating idea to me. But tell me a little bit about Hanoi Fa, what makes it unique, what makes it so delicious. Yeah, okay. So I need to correct a little bit. Okay, um, please do. It's not <laughs> yeah, so um, uh, Vietnam is a very long country. And um, uh, people still um, like um, discussing like if for actually uh, first... Um, originated from uh, the north of Vietnam or the south of Vietnam. Actually, I think it's um, uh, both uh, about the time um, because um, in the south of Vietnam, we have a lot of uh, Chinese influence. And um, in um, Chinese cuisine, they also have a very similar dish uh, uh, to pho. Uh, and uh, the Chinese people that came here and then... Uh, uh, we also combine and adjust, and then uh, we uh, make uh, a, a more Vietnamese version of pho in the south of Vietnam. Uh, so uh, if you uh, come to the north and the south of Vietnam and you try pho, you can see that it's very different. Uh, maybe because in the north it's more French influence, and in the south it's more Chinese influence. Um, as I told you earlier, um, in the north it's um, uh, from the consommé, uh, from French influence and uh, consomme is like the broth it need to be clarified um, so the the full in the north of Vietnam the broth is very clear um, so it's um, it's like that spirit right hmm. um, clarified and in the south of Vietnam um, the broth is very dark and um, the everything in full, even fresh hook in the north uh, no that's the that's like taboo. <laughs> Okay. You can add fresh herb in for <laughs> yeah. Maybe the the southern people that they come to Hanoi, maybe they don't really like it. They not really appreciate the difference. Um, everything in the north of Vietnam is more balanced and a little bit milder than in the south of Vietnam, and um, um, pho is no difference. So um, the broth um, you have to eat and you think and you enjoy it. Um like um, close, um, slowly, then you will feel and you can enjoy all the, um, the uh, deliciousness of it. Um, it's like more gentle. It's a very gentle dish. Um, all the, um, the flavor that comes from the bone and the meat um, and then all the side uh, spices like uh, um, garlic pickle in vinegar, for example, um, everything um, all the flavor come together. Um, that's the um, that's what is the best uh, from pho. Yeah, I like this idea of sitting down and savoring your pho, not wolfing it down as fast as possible, but actually enjoying it and savoring it. And my understanding is that there's lots of different ways to enjoy pho as far as the ingredients go. What are some of the different ingredients that we might get in a pho in Hanoi? Okay. Um, actually, pho, um, 
it's a short name a bit. Um, you need to say phở bò if you want to mean the uh, the beef noodle soup. Uh, because phở um, is in the name of a kind of noodle. The noodle you eat in the phở soup is phở. And um, we can have many different uh, versions of phở, like uh, phở soup, phở stir-fried, phở uh, rolled, like a spring roll. Um, and we have fried pho as well. So it's many different um, versions of pho and also many different toppings. So the most famous topping, of course, is beef. And we also have chicken. Um, and um, in some uh, mountainous area where they don't have a lot of beef, they can even have uh, pork pho as well. And um, actually, um, beef is uh, um, the big, is proof that um, pho is um, uh, is a dish of uh, French influence uh, because in the past uh, in the north of Vietnam um, sometimes uh, eating beef is illegal oh. uh, because um, yeah because uh, buffalo and cow um, uh, are the uh, biggest um, um, property of one family and um, we use buffalo and cow for plastic in the rice paddle field. So um, um, if uh, we don't have them anymore, then uh, so, um, uh, how you say it? Uh, uh, we cannot be as productive uh, to work and to produce more rice. So it's illegal to eat uh, beef unless you have um, proof or uh, like the, the cow or the uh, buffalo about to die or it died already, then you can eat. <laughs> oh, my. yeah. Okay. So you're waiting for the buffalo to die before you eat it because otherwise <laughs> you're not going to be able to be as productive yeah. on your agricultural land. You're not going to have a beast of burden to plow the rice paddies for you. That's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, if, you, um, if you eat it deliberately, then you can be sent to prison. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> Um, yeah, in the past, now you can eat beef every day. <laughs> sure, sure. This, this is in the past, not, not today. Yeah. Okay. Um, so we've got, we've got beef and we've got chicken. Um, are there any of these fuzz that are suitable for vegetarians? Yeah. Um, but, you know, like, um, because um, the street food is more like a delicacy. Uh, we eat because we like to eat, not like, um, not like rice at home. Uh, when we eat, we have to eat every meal. Um, so, um, so because it's delicacy. Um, and in the past, um, Vietnamese uh, was ha uh, like Vietnamese had for uh, meat for a long time. So meat is something that everyone want to eat. And um, sometimes, like um, only you can only eat some meat uh, during the Lunar New Year. Yeah, so um, I tell you that, uh, so you can imagine how we um, appreciate eating meat. So um, uh, on the street food is like delicacy. Um, that's why most of the street food uh, have meat inside. Uh, of course, they can um, uh, adjust and they can make the vegetarian part, uh, the vegetarian version. Um, but you have to know how to um, uh, how to say it and uh, which this can be. Uh, vegetarian uh, modified and quickly cannot so um, it's much better for a vegetarian uh, tourist to come with a, uh, uh, to a guy 
to know uh, witness to it. Yeah. So uh, for pho, um, we uh, we also have a vegetarian pho, and uh, we also have vegetarian uh, uh, pho road. Yeah. Um, oh. But to um, yeah to enjoy the vegetarian food um, to eat best, I think uh, people can do um, like our uh, cooking class. Uh, so in the um, vegetarian cooking class, they can try the um, vegetarian dish, but um, it's fullest, not like um, just put out the meat. Laura Hernandez Espinoza runs the world-famous restaurant Leo in Bogota, Colombia. She tells me about three different soups, including one that's a famous hangover cure. So we're talking about going out at night. You said you have a beer. You, you said you have um, some other fun dishes, some street food. So that kind of leads into this dish that I wanted to ask you about, which is called caldo. And here in Portugal, we have a, a soup called, this is a soup, caldo. We have a soup called caldo verde, which is very different. It's like a kale soup with chorizo on top. But caldo is something completely different. Um, and it seems like, People in Colombia have this as uh, a sort of a hangover cure. Can can you tell me is is that true? And and what's caldo all about? How how do you enjoy that? Of course, that's the perfect cure for hangover. Um, and there are many versions of it. Um, but certainly it has cebollín, which are sort of a chive uh, type of chive, um, potato different types of potato, uh, also um, cilantro, cilantro leaves. That's something that it has to be in it. Um, and I love to put a boiled egg as well in it. Um, I like it vegetarian, but most it's mostly consumed with um, costilla de res, which is a type of beef. To make it, um, to make it, you know, tasty and and also, well, yeah, I think to give it a little bit more of flavor. Um, but that's the caldo, uh, and we used to have it uh, late at night, three a.m., four a.m., when you're mm-hmm. already drunk and you need, <laughs> I need to, I need to be okay to go home and to wake up uh, the next day. We also have it the next day of the hangover. Uh, we, we have it uh, for breakfast and it is delicious and is, it is part of our um, culture. Uh, and I believe it not just in Bogota, but anywhere in Colombia. It sounds like it would do the job. Um, you mentioned that uh, you like to have your caldo with a poached egg in it. Um, we actually have in here in uh, Portugal in the next uh, next region over. Um, there's a there's a tomato soup that they make with a poached egg in it. So I can I can vouch that you know Americans might think oh a poached egg on my soup that sounds weird. It's it's absolutely delicious, and it it makes me want to ask you about a soup called uh, changua, which also has poached eggs in it. Um, what can you tell me about that dish? Yeah, the changua. Well, changua, the changua has enemies and lovers. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> find, you'll find that there's people that love the changua and others that uh, find them unconceivable, you know, like having this milky uh, soup 
with a poached egg and um, cilantro on top. Yeah, it's another version of the caldo, but with milk. Um, I have to say that is one of the most uh, beautiful treasures of the Andean gastronomy. I love it. Tango is my thing. And there's also a um, version from Boyacá that they put it al mojavana, which is like another type of bread similar to pan de bono, and, and they put it inside it. So that's even better. <laughs> Ooh, with the bread. Oh, yum. Oh, delicious. <laughs> okay. Let's let's round out the trifecta of soup with uh, agiaco, I think is how I say it. Um, what can you tell me about this dish? Well, the agiaco is a soup um, and, and the etymological uh, origin of agiaco is from the aji, which is the pepper. Um, and you have different types of agiaco from Cuba to Peru to Ecuador. Um, but the ajiaco santafereño, that's another thing. Ajiaco santafereño, it's the typical dish of Bogotá. And it was born in the 50s with all this French influence. Of course, it, it, it is what, what's uh, very nice about uh, the ajiaco is that you can find the different influences that are part of the Colombian gastronomy. So we have the Spanish influence, we have the indigenous influence, and and well, there's 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 no Afro influence in there, but it's mainly indigenous and Spanish traditions mixed up together. And and it's the use of the onion, um, the different types of uh, potatoes. Uh, but also with the cream, it, it has some, it has uh, guascas that I don't know how to translate them because I don't think um, there's a, a translation for it, but it's like a leaf that grows in the Andean mountains. Um, so it it's lovely. I mean, I would say it's something that represents us. Um, and, um, yeah, I think it's great. Soup. After that, I need to whip up a nice batch of caldo verde here in Portugal. If you want to hear more from my guests, I've got links to entire episodes with them in the show notes at radiomisfits.com slash DED253. Well, that's a wrap on this week. Next week, we're back with a brand new episode on coffee tourism with cups from all over the world, including Cuba, Malaysia, Hawaii, Costa Rica, and more. So don't miss that. Until then, get over to DestinationEatDrink.com. I just posted a new story about a cool spot in Portugal where there's dinosaur tracks and a remote hermitage, as well as a really odd story about where those dinosaur tracks came from. You can read that at DestinationEatDrink.com slash blog. I also just posted a video. This one's about Milan and a gelato there that's made with champagne. You can see that by clicking on the videos tab at DestinationEatDrink.com or on YouTube at DestinationEatDrink946. Destination Eat Drink is distributed by the Radio Misfits Podcast Network and a guy who makes his caldo verde broth with scotch, Ed Silla. Thanks, Ed. I'm Brent Peterson, and I'll see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink. 
a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network.